Jesus' earthly ministry had a multifaceted approach. He certainly came to give his life as a ransom for many. He also came to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that who might enter it and to call for repentance. And part of his teaching was to allow people to understand what was required of a believer, what would be a disciple. And then some of his teaching was to prevent us from becoming like the Pharisees and others. But there would be times in his teaching that he would make a call, in essence, to gather those who had been following him to a more and deeper commitment to that discipleship. And that is where uh, we find ourselves at this particular point, is that Jesus is going to be not just teaching, but making a call. And so in Luke chapter 13, it says this, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Now, we're not quite sure what the mixing of their blood with the sacrifices. My presupposition, and it's my presupposition, is that while the Galileans uh, were present in Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices, which would be a blood sacrifice, and they would place their hands on the animal being sacrificed, that they were then murdered at that time, which would be a pretty uh, devastating thing. And as we kind of see here and in the next situation, that the more things change, the more they stay the same. What do I mean by that? We have a tendency when something bad happens to somebody, we think that, aha, something is justifying that. And unfortunately, you'll see this in the, the world where something bad will happen to a person or a group of people that some people or a lot of people don't like or don't agree with, and they almost seem jubilant or happy that that thing happened to them. And their first response is, oh, uh, that they deserve that bad thing. Kind of shows where their heart is. The second situation, and, and I deal with this more because of being a pastor, is that uh, something bad will happen. Somebody will be diagnosed with some terrible disease or something, and they will think that God is mad at them, and that is why that they have experienced this situation. And so our immediate result is these things happen because of our conduct. Jesus' response to that is no. As he says, he asks the question, do you suppose these Galileans, Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And the kind of the response is, even in our day, is oh, well, kind of yeah, they probably deserved it. But Jesus turns it in. It's one of those things that as I often say, as I point one finger at you, three fingers are being pointed back at me. And Jesus is pointing basically his whole hand at us. Because he tells, I tell you no, but unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. You see, the question isn't whether they're greater or worse or whatever. It's what about you? What are you doing in response to what God is doing? And so he's saying, you may notice what is happening to others, but that doesn't let you, number one, off the hook or make you any better than them. As the scripture says, it rains on the just and the unjust. And so to drive home this point further, he says, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? So whether this was a uh, construction accident or they were trying to do some misdeed and, and the tower fell, he's saying the question is, okay, these 18 men died. Because they died, are they any worse than every single man in Jerusalem? And his response is, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what I see from this is when we see events happen, whether it's in the world or to others, our response should not be, oh, they were worse than me, I feel good. It's no, what is my relationship with God? Am I living a, a proper relationship with him? Do I need to repent? The scriptures say in the Old Testament, which was quoted in the New Testament by Paul, who says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become loose, useless. There is none who does good, not even one. So God says, nobody is good. To further relate to that, when Jesus was called a good teacher, Jesus said, there is no one good but God. So let, let, me, let me tell you a little secret that may be a big secret. Okay, I, I want to tell you this secret. I want you to get a little closer. Okay, once you get a little closer, I'm going to tell you a secret. You ready? You're not God. You're not God. Even on your best day, you're not good. But God is not only good, God is perfect. If you want to dwell with him, then you need to be good. And as the scripture says, you're not. And so Jesus calls us to repent. Jesus calls us to change our And the repentance is is, is kind of a twofold, especially in the Christian. To repent is to be meaningfully and deeply sorrowful for what you're doing. But it is not there. It is not simply just we are sought to not only to repent, but repentance is to change direction. Now, many times when we look at various people, we think, oh, they're big sinners and they need to make a 180 degree turn from one direction to another. But let me tell you, for those of you who think you're pretty good. The further the destination, the less it takes to miss the mark. If you're traveling 
to Jupiter, which is a huge planet, and you're off by one degree, you're going to miss it big time. And heaven is further away than Jupiter. You can only get there through the blood of Christ. Because the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. That you are earning what you are going to get and that you are not good. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So I don't care how good you think you are. The comparison is not you against me. You win. No argument. I'm not going to argue that I'm better than you because I'm probably not. The argument is, are you as good as God? And his word says no. Secondly, you say, well, you know, I'm not Jewish, and so the law doesn't apply to me, and so I don't have to follow the law. The scriptures also say that you will be held accountable by your own conscience. And I dare to say that there was at least a time when you had one, that you violated it. You even violated the thing that you think is right and wrong. And then we get to a point where we violate our conscience so much that it no longer talks to us. But there was a time, and there may still be a time, that you have a conscience. And if you violated that, you have missed the mark and need to be corrected in your journey. So Jesus says that correction is to repent, not to look at what happens to other people, but to take what happens to other people and understand that you need to repent. And so in case you're not quite sure how that happens, I want to share with you what that means. And so in Romans, it says this. But what does it say? The word is near to you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say that if you live a wonderful life, you will be saved. It says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, and notice it said Jesus is Lord. It didn't say Jesus is Savior. For the, with the heart, a person believes. And the heart is not just the thing that pounds. It's the entire essence of who you are. It's your emotions. It's your understanding. It's your intellect. It's all the, what that is. That is what is a part of the heart. So that results in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. The purpose of Jesus coming is that we might repent, might believe, and might confess. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So let's go back to what Jesus is teaching. So, and he began this verse 6. He began telling them this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it 
and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have, been, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now this parable really hits home because Jesus has been ministering for approximately three years. And he's been telling them they need to repent. He's been telling them that the kingdom of God is coming and there is very little fruit in acknowledgement of that. So he's saying, why shouldn't I be just done away with you? Why don't I just cut it down? Because you are, you're just taking up space. Here's Jesus. Mild, meek, mannered Jesus. Saying in this parable, you're just taking up space. But the worker says, be patient. Give it one more year. We'll do a few things. We'll fertilize. We'll dig around. We'll do it. And we'll see that if it then produces fruit and if it does, great. But if it doesn't, okay, I agree with you. Let's cut it down. Jesus doesn't tell us how the parable ends. This is how I think it ends. Because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his disciples start to bear fruit. And others start to bear fruit. And they start seeing the kingdom of that hand. And so because of the patience and the effort of our Lord, the patience, you show, and within six months, he will be crucified. Forty days, three days thereafter, he will raise again. Forty days thereafter, he will ascend on to heaven. And 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit will come at Pentecost and the church will explode in numbers, bearing fruit. So the question I ask is, as a part of this, as a part of your repentance, are you bearing fruit? Now, oftentimes people think, well, fruit means, well, I gather, I win somebody else to the Lord. Yes, that's part of it. But the fruit that is usually that we are to inspect is the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, love, gentleness, kindness, all of those things that are apart. And again, the you is not I'm to inspect your fruit. I am to look at my life and inspect my fruit or lack thereof. I praise the Lord for those who bear fruit aren't taking up space. Verse 10, he goes on, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus' regular routine is to go to Sabbath. And because he was an itinerant rabbi, he would frequently be the invited speaker. But Jesus' regular routine was to attend the synagogue at the Sabbath and at the temple on the holy days. 
His disciples aren't quite as good at attending, not necessarily the synagogue, but church regularly, and especially on holy days. Now, the two things is, one, I want you to see that Jesus' habit is to attend. To me, the sad thing is, because something's going to happen here. What if you didn't go? You wouldn't see what Jesus is doing. You would miss the miracles. You would miss the teaching. And so I encourage us as his disciples to continue the habit, if you will, to attend worship, to attend teaching, so that you not only learn from him, but you don't miss what he's doing. And so he was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who was 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. We see this woman, it says, for 18 years. Can you imagine for 18 years being so doubled up that you can't even look straight? She's doubled up. And it says part of this illness is by a spirit. And when Jesus saw her, and again, what if she didn't attend synagogue that day? Because after all, she probably didn't feel well. She was hurting. Life was hard. But she attended Sabbath anyway. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over. Now again, he called her. Jesus didn't go to her. She said, Come here. So she went. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Two things. Can you imagine how revival ought to have broken out in that synagogue. Here's this woman who's been in this situation for 18 years. It's not such a short time that no one would notice. I mean, pretty much her life was this 18 years of this experience. And Jesus heals her immediately. She gets up erect. And not only does she starts glorifying God, which ought to be our response when God does what he does. But, sounds like a bunch of Baptists sometimes. But the synagogue official became indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day. Okay. Let's look at the logic of this. Number one, people go to synagogue on the Sabbath. They don't go there every other day. So why would you go on Monday to get healed when there ain't nobody there? Especially Jesus. Because he's going somewhere else. Second, other than laying hands on the lady and speaking, what work got happened? 
His power is such, he didn't need to do much. So to call that work seems to be a stretch of the imagination. But I tell you, I'm pretty sure that whether it was work or not, this woman was excited and grateful that he healed her. Can you imagine the hard-heartedness of watching somebody in pain and difficulty for 18 years and instead of glorifying God, being upset that it happened? And yet, as I say, the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Now, notice Jesus doesn't apologize. And he says, oops, I, you're right. I shouldn't have done this on the Sabbath. Oh, oh. he's going to hit them right square between the eyes. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. You play actors, you people who claim to be the people of God, you people who claim to be speaking for God, you people who claim to know what God's will is and to do it, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? So when did that not become work? Because you've got to untie something. Now, if in modern-day Israel you can't push a button on an elevator and not that considered work, untying an ox would be work. To lead that ox or donkey towards water would be work. And yet, God is saying, why is it that that's exempt? Because it's kindness. Because it follows the Scriptures. How do the Scriptures read? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. The scriptures will also say, how is it that you can love God who you cannot see? if You do not love your brother who you can. Jesus was loving his sister, which made him love God. And this woman a daughter of Abraham. She's of the faithful. She's one of you. She's one that you should hope that would receive this healing. She's not a Canaanite. She's not a Samaritan. She's a daughter of Abraham. And I think even more so, not just genetically, but as the scriptures who says, everybody who's of faith is of Abraham's seed. I think Jesus is acknowledging this woman is a believer. She's a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. The only time 18 is short is when you look back. I'll look back and I'll say, well, that was like four lifetimes ago. It didn't seem as long ago as it was when I was going through it. Since for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath? Jesus is saying, what better day to heal somebody than on the Sabbath? To acknowledge God's power, to acknowledge God's love, to acknowledge that God can heal, that God is present. And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And well, they should. 
It's one of the few times we see them actually kind of bowing their hair going, oops. Usually they're so headstrong in their opposition, they don't care what Jesus says or does. But at least here, they understand the humiliation. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So we got the synagogue officials, some of the quote-unquote religious leaders who are upset, but are now kind of, I hope this service over, is over quickly. But the crowd is saying, praise the Lord. We have seen God at work in our midst. Now, some people hearing me may be bound by some sickness. But all of us are or have been bound by sin. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We seem to be slaves to that. And God is willing to loose you from that binding. And it's no longer work to him because as he said on the cross, it is finished. All the work is done. All we need to do is approach him in faith. Saying, I know and agree with the scriptures that I too am a sinner, that the wages of sin are death, that there is no one good. And quite frankly, I never sought for God, but God always sought for me. And that it is his desire to loose me from the bounds of sin. And what better day whether it be a Sabbath or a Sunday or a Monday, but now to come to that freedom. And for those of us who have experienced it, to say, God, I also repent that I've cheapened your grace, that I have not been the disciple I ought to be, but by your grace, I will change that direction. By your love, you still call me. That God, instead of looking at the lives of others, I will simply inspect my relationship with you. And in that, I will seek your forgiveness which so freely is offered to us. And all God's people said,